According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 20 will be our passage once again. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. The uh, 11th hour laborers. Although I think the point is made much more vividly with the first hour laborers, the early morning guys. They're the ones that were all legalistic and upset and bothered. They're the ones who were um, offended over, uh, over these things. Well, we almost covered the totality of this one week ago, but point seven and eight have a little bit more fleshing out to do. And plus, I thought maybe we rushed through uh, points five and six a little bit. So we'll have a second session today to work our way through it and uh, make sure that we are solid on the principle that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This is the the message. It frames the uh, parable. It, It appears in chapter 19 and verse 30. And it's restated again in chapter 20 and verse 16. So it's the verse in front of the parable. It's the verse at the end of the parable. And in between, the parable makes that same point. That the last shall be first, the first shall be last. All right. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are humble under the authority of Scripture. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. We thank you that the faithfulness will be manifested one more time as we assemble together, as we study to show ourselves approved. Father, this is uh, in accordance with your will. It's by your design that uh, a flock gathers together to be fed, to be taught. We thank you that we can come in and worship in spirit and in truth, and that your Holy Spirit is, is by your design the faithful member of Trinity that guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so, Father, as we uh, revel in your faithfulness once again today, we look forward to all that you have for us, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Eleventh hour laborers. You know, this morning we uh, were praying at the prayer meeting, and we were going through the different websites and looking at the different churches we were praying for. And there's a church, I won't tell you which one or which pastor, but we, uh, they have videos posted as well as the audio on, on the classes. And uh, he uh, gave some introductory announcements and that, and then he did the standard deal like I do. All right, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and distractions are set aside and so forth. He actually explained it for about two or three minutes there, why prayer is important to start. And then he said, all right, let's pray. And everyone bowed their heads, and uh, he used that opportunity to reach down and get his water bottle and unscrew the cap and take a quick drink and then put it back, which I was shocked because... um, it's actually something I've thought about over the years, but I've never dared to do it. I've never, I've never dared. I always thought, oh, no, that's not right. I'm supposed to be praying, you know. And so I would stay silent. I would pray. And then we would open class. And then I would go ahead and reach for my coffee or something. I never felt right. I never felt right with the congregation, their heads bowed and their eyes closed, using that to sneak a quick drink or something. So when I saw that on the video this morning, I was just stunned because for... 15 years now, I've always avoided doing that. But anyway, probably a good reminder why we don't want to go to video when uh, <laughs> you know, who knows what kind of embarrassing things take place. Well, 
Matthew chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. I want to be cautious. We, I say this every time when we touch on a parable. Uh, there is a danger that you read too much into the parable, that you try to find an equivalency with every little detail, with every little element of the story. And you say, well, this has to have, this has to be significant or wouldn't be mentioned, or this has to have, this detail has to have a corresponding reality. And you can go too far with that, all right? Because fundamentally, the nature of a parable is to make a point, to make a single point. And if you get that point, then the purpose for the parable is achieved. And in this case, as we see in point one of our study outline today, the inversion of first and last, swapping them out, inverting them, making the first to be last, making the last to be first, the inversion of first and last frames the kingdom of heaven parable. It frames it. The, the verse right before the parable starts Matthew 19.30 says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then the verse that ends the parable, chapter 20, verse 16. So, the last shall be first, the first last. This is the principle that frames opening, uh, like bookends, opening and closing the story. And so this is the point we want to get out of the story. Now, the story itself has more details, of course. Uh, very vividly tells the story, and the details are important to recognize as long as we don't in the, in the midst of studying those details, lose the point, the overall point of the message. So hopefully you have the, uh, the drift on that. The difference between the first group and the other four groups that follow is the first group is the one that's under contract. The early morning laborers agreed. They have a pre-arranged contract, a covenant, as it were. They agreed to do one day's work for one day's pay. And the, the statement of the agreement here is important in verse 2. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, a denarius was the de Roman denomination for, uh, of silver that was equivalent of a, of a single day's pay. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for one day, he sent them into his vineyard. And so they went into agreement. All right, we'll work for you for the day. And uh, they started at the, at the very beginning of a 12-hour work day. The rest of these, whether it's the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, or the last group, the eleventh hour, they were not under a covenant agreement. They were not under bondage, as it were. They had no obligations on their part to uphold, and there was no uh, obligation on the landowner's part to behold other than his statement that he would be righteous. So he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. In this, uh, in this agreement with the third hour laborers here, there is no contract agreed to. There is no uh, stipulation, no covenant as it were. They go alongside the first group. They become partakers with the first group, but they're not under the same covenant with the first group. They're doing much the same work. But they are simply leaving themselves under the standard of righteousness. And this was our third point of study in the outline from last week. The third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour laborers worked for proportionately smaller periods of time. A three-quarter day, a half day, and a quarter day. But their salary was promised as whatever is right. Whatever is right. And that is a grace approach. That is a faith approach. This is the difference between operating on a law basis, 
with so many of the uh, stories like the rich young ruler that preceded this in uh, chapter 19. He was trying to earn his way. He was trying to measure up. He was trying to do everything. What must I do? And uh, not in a humble question, but in a boastful way, because he already knew that he had done everything. He was convinced that he'd done everything, that everything in the law, I've done this, done this, done this. I'm, I'm worthy of heaven until Jesus said, well, then give away all your money. All right. Um, the idea that we are going to bargain our way or adhere to a legal agreement for glory is, well, first of all, it's impossible. But to illustrate that, we see it played out here in this parable. And so they're approaching on a covenant works basis. These other groups are not approaching on a covenant works basis. They are simply proceeding to accomplish the work the Lord has for them to do and to do so on a faith basis, believing, trusting that the one who is sending them into the work is going to be righteous, that he will be righteous at the end of the day because he's righteous now. He's eternally righteous. And that's the difference between the covenant works approach and the uh, grace by faith approach. So they are willing to work for whatever is right. Important to note that they are not party to the original covenant. But they do participate alongside the original covenant laborers. So as far as the story tells, I think we can approach this in a number of different ways. And one of the ways I illustrated last week is that we can view this dispensationally and we can relate the church to Israel on the same basis that this parable relates the later hour laborers with the early hour laborers. When it comes right down to it, of course, Israel preceded the church and Israel could be viewed as the early morning laborers, in which case we understand clearly why it is that they are in a covenant works relationship with a landowner. Israel was, in fact, before they entered into their land, Israel was ushered into a covenant works relationship at Mount Sinai. They voluntarily agreed to do all that God had for them to do under Mosaic law conditions. And so you can view Israel as a covenant works approach to serving the Lord. Uh, whereas we, dispensationally, the church, is not Israel. We are later laborers coming along in the third, sixth, ninth, eleventh hours, what have you. Okay, um, I wouldn't say we're eleventh hour laborers. I think that represents the uh, tribulational uh, martyrs, the tribulational saints. Uh, but anyway, that... All that aside, we are clearly later and we are not under a covenant agreement. This parable only places the first group under the covenant agreement. I think that's significant. As I said, because only because or, or largely because in different denominations and circles and so forth, there are believers today who struggle to try to either cram the church into the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 or they try to take Jeremiah and then impose it upon the New Testament. They try to find some way by which the church relates as a covenant party to the new covenant. And uh, different uh, folks find different ways to do that. And they all find it difficult to do that. They all find problems with how they do it. And so they work hard to try to make it work. And... Uh, I believe, as I said last week, you can do yourself a huge favor if you don't even start trying to endeavor in that process. Don't try to take Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant, which is made with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and try to take that covenant and impose it on the church. We're not party to that covenant. That covenant is between Yahweh Elohim and 
Israel. All right. We need to understand that we're not party to that covenant any more than I'm party to the um, to the commands to go uh, destroy the Amalekites. Not my command. It's not my realm. I'm not supposed to march around Jericho seven times. I'm not commanded to build an ark and shove a bunch of animals in there. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. And if the passage does not address me, then I still I can learn from it. I can still glean the principles that might apply. But I am not under an obligation for obedience. And at that point, I think when you can recognize the church is not party to the new covenant, then I think you do yourself a huge favor and other other things then come into line. So anyway, this parable, I think, addresses that to a large extent when you recognize that these are other laborers who are not part of that uh, covenant agreement. Under point four, we took some time to work out the 11th hour laborers. Uh, They're the only group that's challenged as to their idleness. Uh, the others we told were idle, but the landowner didn't challenge them or chastise them for being idle. And uh, we don't know why uh, they weren't available at the start of the day, why they weren't hired until the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. None of those details are part of the story. And so they're not, um, strictly speaking, they're not really important to the development. But the last group is. And so, again, we ask ourselves, if... The, the text saw fit, if the Holy Spirit saw fit in the text to inspire the challenging question of the Lord here, then there has to be a reason for it, because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Why is this last group challenged, questioned, as to their idleness for 11 hours? All right. When the payment gets made, I know this is very rapid, this is a 10-minute review from everything last week. Um, the foreman was ordered, this is point five, the foreman was ordered to pay the five groups of laborers in reverse order. Pay them, pay the last first. And again, this is the illustration that the last shall be first, the first shall be last. How is it that they're first? They're paid first. All right. Um, now, they're paid an equal amount, and we're not told, uh, you know, what happens the next day. See, this is a, this is a daily snapshot, presumably. The next day, then more workers are going to get hired and and uh, whatever else happens. This is not uh, a comprehensive study on what eternity is going to be like. You can't take this and view this as a pattern for eternal rewards because this is a single day in snapshot and it's not told to us what the lingering, ongoing consequence is going to be. There are different parables that do that. And we want to make certain that we're not conflating the, the stories or trying to muddle the issue. And I'll make that clear as well. In fact, that's the whole point we're going to make under main point eight. So he says, starting with the last group, starting with the last group. And uh, the only reason for doing that is so that the earlier groups can observe. The earlier groups can testify. Uh Conceivably, you know, if he paid the early guys first, gave them their denarius, and they they would have left and been oblivious to the generosity that he showed to the later groups. They wouldn't have known. They'd have collected their their denarius and and walked out. But as it is, since he pays the later group first, then the early guys still have to kind of stand there waiting for waiting for theirs before they can depart. This was before direct deposit, you know, and all that. <laughs> federal withholding and everything else. They wouldn't have come with nearly the denarius after the taxation and union dues and everything else. All right. 
So they pay them in reverse order. And there are no complaints until you get to that first group. No complaints. Obviously, the 11th hour guys that got a, they got 12 hour salary for one hour of work, and they're not complaining. <laughs> right? But neither are the 9th hour laborers. They're not complaining either. They got 12 hours of pay for three hours of work. And they're not complaining either. The six hour guys, they worked half a day but got a full day power, uh, salary. They're not complaining either. Now, I suppose it's conceivable that maybe they might complain having worked three hours instead of one or having worked six hours instead of one or three. They might have said, well, hey, how come? But they're not going to go there because they already know that they're receiving twice what they really deserve anyway, that they are objects of generosity, they're objects of grace, and they're thankful for the grace. And again, I think it's reflective of the fact that they started, before they even went into the, into the vineyard, they did so on a grace-through-faith basis. Uh, not under contract, not under covenant, not demanding anything, not deserving anything. Do they deserve a denarius? No, they don't deserve a denarius. But they didn't start the work on the basis of what they deserve. They started work on the basis of whatever is right in your sight. By grace through faith. And that's, that's huge. And uh, I hope that we can start to recognize that this function of grace through faith is how we get saved, is how we live, and it's how we're going to get rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. None of us are going to be able to complain when our gold, silver, and precious stones are what they are. To say, oh, oh, we did more. We did more. We deserve more. No. <laughs> I deserve the lake of fire. Whatever it results in wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, whatever results is all grace through faith. It's all grace. Because it's fruit that he chose to bear through me. Didn't have to, but he chose to. And I can be thankful for it. I don't have to grumble that, well, you know, how come, uh, you know, Pastor Theme gets this and, and I only get that, see. <laughs> All right. I kind of think that since the last shall be first and he was pastor before I was, then pastors that come in the years after me will have far more than I'll ever dream of because they're going to teach far more. They're going to bear much more fruit. They're going to build on anything we do in this generation. All right. But you get the point. The third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour laborers, they offer no complaints. And for that matter, neither did the eleventh hour. No complaints for the Lord's generosity. And no dissatisfaction. They didn't grumble about the eleventh hour guys. And they didn't grumble about what they got. See? And this is the key. You know, in carnality, what other people have, that... that bugs you and then what you don't have bugs you <laughs> okay if you're a legalist there's two big problems everybody else and you <laughs> right and if you're a legalist the problem with everybody else is you disagree with what they've got and then the problem with you is that you disagree with what you don't got and that's the sadness of pride that's the sadness of self-centeredness and selfishness and everything that is wrapped up in cosmos wisdom but when you approach it on the basis of grace through faith, then uh, it's all grace. And you, and you don't complain, you celebrate. Man, I'm happy that I got a full day's pay for only half a day's work or three quarters day work or whatever. And man, I'm happy for those guys. They worked an hour and scored big. 
I'm happy for them. Okay? I'm not going to grumble over how they, how they made out like bandits. All right? Because I, I made out like a little bandit. Yeah, I'm just happy for grace. But it's the early morning laborers. They're the ones. And they accuse him of being unrighteous. Interestingly, they never, they didn't enter into the work day on the basis of righteousness. They entered it on the basis of a legal covenant. And so, if they want to accuse him of being illegal or violating a covenant, well, they can't because he's, he's met their terms. He paid them the denarius. He's done them no wrong. He has not been illegal and he's not been unrighteous. But to accuse him of being unrighteous is laughable because they never were in a righteous in a righteous relationship. See, that was never their standard. Never their standard. Be like, uh, you know, I could, I, could accuse, uh, I could accuse Christopher of being a crummy boss. Well, that'd be kind of silly since he and I are not in the boss-employer-employee relationship. See, I don't know if he's a crummy boss or not because he's not my boss. All right? Try to Try to take a relationship you're not part of and then hold somebody else to to some kind of a standard? What are you doing? That's not the relationship you're in. So they accuse him of being unrighteous even though the terms of their work covenant were never established on the basis of righteousness. They didn't even start their day. They never functioned on the basis of grace through faith. Alright, now the final issues and the ones where we were just so out of time last week I thought we were too rushed working way through. The idea of equality. The idea of equality, it's one of the funniest things. This cosmos can't make up its mind. Uh, because there are, of course, realms in which equality is an idol. The God of equality. Everything is pursued on the basis of equality. And equality is, is magnified as if it's some kind of utopia ideal. As if it ever exists in any kind of aspect. Equality is abhorrent to those who view themselves superior. So this is why I say that the cosmos is schizophrenic because there will be applications where they will demand equality no matter what. But then there are other applications where the idea of equality is abhorrent. Who do you think you are to be equal to me? Wait a minute. See, and so it's, it, I think it reflects the insanity of, of satanic thinking that when it's when it serves your nefarious purposes, then you can, of course, rally behind the idea of equality. Uh, but if it doesn't serve your satanic mentality, well, then equality is an insult. What are you talking about? And so I find it quite, uh, quite interesting, you know, and, and the point that's made in, in Animal Farm, actually, you know, that, uh, <laughs> you know, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others, you know. And so we set up this utopia with equality as the idol, but then, of course, uh, for who was that Napoleon Snowball? It's been years since I read the thing, but the you know for the powers that be, well they're more equal, you know, and, and the idea that you you're entitled to that? Oh no no no, you're not entitled to that. All right, and so here we say you have made them to be equal to us. This is their complaint. This is their envy. We're told. So, uh, verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought, they thought, that was their first problem, they thought that they would receive more. Well, where did they get that idea? Why did they think such a thing? 
what gave them that idea other than their own human viewpoint notions of what they would think they deserved. And so, uh, but each of them also received a denarius. And so when they received it, they grumbled. They grumbled. The landowner did not pay them what they thought they were entitled to. In other words, God's estimation of their worth was significantly less than their own inflated view. <laughs> okay. Saying these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. We've done all this. They have not. We deserve more. You've made them equal. And it's intolerable. It's abhorrent. When they consider all they've done, all they've deserved, all they've worked for, what they are entitled to. And you'll note, it's not on an absolute basis, because on an absolute basis, one denarius, one day's labor. The only reason why they find it unfair is for the relative comparison. Them compared to the other guys. And when they put it in the subjective relative realm, well then, it's unfair. All right, make them equal to us. I went ahead and broke this out. Last week, if you have your notebook from last week, this point was much longer. And so in between, I went ahead and broke it out, and I made the second part of point six. I made that point seven. So if you have the notes from last week, you'll need to renumber, split up number six, and then, and then renumber the old seven and eight, make those now the new eight and nine. Um, I wanted to, to highlight this as a separate concept, because what's motivating these guys? What's motivating this pride? What motivates any pride is satanic thinking. When you walk away from the truth, you are following satanic philosophy. There's no in-between. There's no default. And the default is satanic philosophy. When you fall away from the faith, you're paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Exaltation of the lowly and bringing down the high and mighty. It's unthinkable to the sons of pride. I gave you that title last week. I did not give you the scripture reference of Job 41.34. Job 31.34. Ask yourself, who are the sons of pride? And who is their king? Job 41.34. And here we have it. The earliest book of the Bible. The book of Job. And all of the angelic conflict information in this book. In Job 41, we got the description of Leviathan. All right. The Levitical Tanin, the Levi Tanin, the Levi dragon. We understand Leviathan is Satan. We understand he's the dragon, the twisted serpent, the fleeing serpent from Isaiah 24 and other references. And um, can... uh, the challenge with both Behemoth in chapter 40 and Leviathan in chapter 41 is uh, the rebuke against Job. Can you go face to face with Leviathan? The answer is obviously no. And uh, so if you can't go face to face with Leviathan, uh, how dare you think you can challenge Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God? How dare you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You're so puny that you're afraid of this dragon. How are you going to go face to face with me? And so here's the uh, description of putting a rope in his nose and piercing his jaw with a hook and all of the 
things this dragon does. And uh, concerning, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength of his orderly frame who can strip off his outer armor, who can come within his double mail, who can open the doors of his face around his teeth. There is terror. Uh, verse 18, his sneezes flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go forth burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. All right. You know, if, if you if you are humble under the authority of Scripture, you have no problem seeing a dragon in this passage. If you're a, a postmodern theological liberal, you don't you think the Bible's kind of primitive and goofy anyway, then you, you try to turn this into a crocodile or some kind of other natural explanation for whatever, whatever, and and uh, which I find is kind of laughable. I've never seen a fire-breathing crocodile um, things there. All right. The, the idea is, of course, is that nothing on earth is like him. This is a unique being. A human being cannot stand in the face of this. And that's hardly... If it's hardly the point you can make if you're talking about a crocodile or something that were regularly hunted. It was a feat that the Pharaoh had to do in, in slaying a crocodile and other things that were uh, difficult, of course. Don't, I'm not going to volunteer for that. But possible in the realm of humanity, it is possible to, to hunt and kill a crocodile. Uh, but to hunt and kill this guy is impossible. There is none like him. Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. But here's the summary in verse 34. He looks on everything that is high. His whole focus, and you see it in the five I wills, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will take my seat on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Everything is focused as glorious as he is, as unique as he is, the most powerful, wisest created being ever, as a mortal being to ever be created. And yet he's dissatisfied because he's looking to a higher state. He looks on everything that is high, and he is king over all the sons of pride. That's why we describe this. All viewpoint, that's not divine viewpoint. So often we refer to it as human viewpoint, but what is human viewpoint molded by, shaped by, influenced by? It's saturated in this cosmos system, this world system, where everything is controlled by the diabolical, the, the devil's way of thinking. His prideful way of thinking. The satanic philosophies of me first. The satanic philosophies of I'm number one. <laughs> Look out for me. That's all satanic. The idea of exalting the lowly. It's unthinkable. It's foolish. It's stupid. The idea that God is gives grace to the humble. What a waste of time. What a... Ridiculous pastor. See, satanic thinking doesn't even grasp genuine humility. It can't. It's completely out of the perspective for that insanity. So exaltation of the lowly and bringing down the high and the mighty. Honoring these 11th hour laborers. Giving these one hour guys 12 hours of pay. That's unthinkable. Unthinkable to the sons of pride. This principle forms a core for understanding the angelic conflict. And uh, the Septuagint of Proverbs 3.34 is what gets quoted in James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
He gives grace to the humble. And ask yourself, see, if Jesus had the attitude that Lucifer had, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. <laughs> right? I don't like calling them Luc- Lucifers from the Latin, the Vulgate. I don't like even using the term. I like the Hebrew, the Hillel, Hillel ben Shachar. If Jesus Christ had the attitude that Hillel ben Shachar had, then he wouldn't have gone to the cross. See, remember what we told in Philippians. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be seized or taken hold of or claimed arrogantly. But he humbled himself and came in the form of a man. He lowered himself. And he came down not just to the level of angels, but lower than angels to the realm of humanity. If you grasp this, then you understand, start to understand the framework for what the angelic conflict is all about. Why God created humanity. Why God created the mighty angels first and then the puny human second. And why it's His pleasure to magnify humanity. Alright, so James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. There's more things there in the context of 1 Peter 5, including humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, including to, uh, to resist the devil, he will flee from you. 1 Peter deals with um, a, lot of those, uh, a lot of those issues. Alright. That's the new point seven. The new point eight, which was point seven last week. Those who serve on the basis of works and merit are susceptible to envy. You're susceptible to envy. If in your way of thinking, you're operating on the basis of works and merit, then this is a danger for you. There will be someone else who's not quite as good as you in your mind, but they're going to seem to score higher and you're not going to like it. Those who serve on the basis of works and merit. If you are consumed over what you've deserved, how hard you work, what you've done. I find it interesting when the Lord talks about Judgment Day and the people that are all impressed with what they've accomplished, the people that have a long laundry list of everything they've done, Lord, Lord, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. Those are the people that He doesn't even know. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Those who serve on the basis of faith and righteousness are open to the grace of God towards themselves and to others. All right, let's take a look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We didn't have time to go through these verses last week, so let's take a moment today. And uh, this follows on the heels of chapter 2 where Paul's giving Titus the instruction for uh, speaking of the things which are fitting for sound doctrine and the different groups and how they're to grow in grace and, and, uh, and things there. Um, how we're to live sensibly. How the grace of God appeared bringing salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. All right. Uh, the end of chapter 2 says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, this is how a local church ought to operate with a faithful communicator of the Word of God. And it goes on. Remind them to be subject to rulers. Now, 
we start to see that if, if the doctrine is, is gathered properly in chapter 2, your Bible study, your submission to authority, your, uh, if the church is working rightly, then the effects of that are going to be seen in daily life. They're going to be seen in the community. They're going to be seen in various applications here, including uh, a, a uh, grace and righteousness approach. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. You know, if you're caught up in system of pride, then you're going to have struggles here. Prideful people are scornful. They malign. They cut others down. Others don't measure up. Prideful people have a real authority issue. They can't submit to, uh, well, the... Uh, Governor's a jerk. The president's an idiot. The, my boss is, uh, is despicable. And if you're wrapped up in these cosmos ways of thinking, authority orientation becomes a problem. To be ready for every good deed. Well, <laughs> I'm not eager to go the extra mile. Are you kidding me? What do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? Why should I give any more than the next guy? I'm under contract for this amount. Said, do this, get paid that, no more. This is the, the, the merit works approach and, and no more. The idea of being generous, of going over the top, of going the extra mile, of serving as unto the Lord. Oh, no, no, no. It's unthinkable. To malign no one, to be, and here's some positive traits here, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. <laughs> is that the first hour group? No. Not at all. They certainly weren't peaceable towards the 11th hour guys or gentle or showing consideration for them. And no consideration for those 11th hour guys. They could not rejoice with those who rejoiced to save their lives because they were too busy grumbling over their good, the other people's good fortune. So they couldn't share in it. Notice verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves. We used to be that way. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, always wrapped up about, I, want, I don't want to get cheated. I don't want to get shorted. I don't want, if they're entitled to it, I'm, in, I'm more entitled to it. Malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. What a sad way to live. What makes it even more sad, I think a lot we, we view this as a contrast between unbelievers and believers, but tragically, what happens when this is a contrast between believers? Yeah, carnal cosmos believers on one hand and believers by walking by grace through faith on the other hand. And so we see it here. It goes on and it shows how glorious our Savior is for saving us. And you get on down here to... Um, why we have to uh, follow up to our salvation with a proper Christian walk. Verse 8 says, It's a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. You see that there? Getting saved? That's the easy part. <laughs> Grace through faith. Boom, you're saved. But now what? Now what does God expect of you now that you're His child? Well, now you've got to walk. Now you've got to live a life that glorifies Christ. Now you've got to live in a manner consistent with the grace that saved you. And you have to be careful to 
engage in the work assignment that He's given you. This is like in Ephesians, that we're saved in the good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You understand? Salvation, step one. After that, we've got to get busy. We've got to serve. We've got to obey. We've got to... You understand how this works? And it's a careful walk. Then just, you can't be sloppy about it. You can't just bumble your way through and just assume it'll all work out. You've got to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. That's walking by faith, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid controversies and strife and disputes about law. And these are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Understand the context of what that's talking about. That's talking about those who aren't walking carefully. That's talking about believers who are still in that darkened way of thinking. They haven't been renewed in the spirit of their minds. Knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and being self-condemned. All right. And so we've really got two sides of the coin here. Faith and righteousness and grace. That's how we're supposed to walk. Faith and righteousness in grace. That's portrayed here in Titus 3, particularly verses 1, 2, and 8. But then works and merit in unbelief are also portrayed. Verse 3, verses 9 through 11. Works and merit in unbelief. I know it might shock you. I shock some folks to think that a believer can walk in unbelief. Absolutely. The unbelief of the believer. You're commanded to walk by faith. So when you're not doing that, what are you doing? You're commanded to walk in the light. So when you're not doing that, what are you doing? God doesn't command us to do something that just automatically happens anyway. He says, walk in the light. That's an order. And if you choose not to do so, by default, you're walking in darkness, aren't you? He says, walk by faith, not by sight. And when you stop doing that, what are you doing? When you're not walking by faith, you're walking in unbelief. Sadly, as a believer, walking in unbelief. Okay. Is that clear? Any questions? I know I don't want... You understand the terminology and how I'm using it. A believer walking in unbelief. The unbelief of the believer. You know, you can go to Hebrews 3 and 4 and study it all out there. The unbelief of the believer. It doesn't mean a loss of salvation. Please don't understand that. I mean, you, don't, you can't lose eternal life. But you can stop walking by faith. And I think uh, the ratio is, uh, is pretty sad in our culture today. You have a question on that? I believe it's a state of carnality. It's a state of sin. Because by omission then, when you're commanded to walk by faith and you're not, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Yeah. So when you choose to walk by sight instead of faith, then uh, you're walking like mere men. First Corinthians chapter 3. Are you not like mere men? It's a tragic. The dog going back to its vomit. It's just you're walking like an unbeliever. When all of the glories of faith are right there for you. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ and the, the treasures of His Word are right there. Alright. Finally, point nine. The old point eight, the new point nine. This parable must be aligned with additional parables that clearly portray eternal inequality. Alright, so join me in Matthew 25. Let's look at another one. And these are clearly communicating different messages in Matthew 25. So if they're different messages, let's not try to blend them into the same message. Let's keep them as different messages and understand they're communicating different truths. 
and one of them is communicating an equality outcome, and the other one is communicating an inequality outcome. And so we need to understand what is the principle of equality and what is the principle of inequality that are both true in the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew 25, and you know it's a different story because um, the details are entirely different. Uh, a man about to go on a journey. There wasn't a guy on a journey in Matthew 20. It was a guy right there that had a, a vineyard called his own slaves and entrusted possessions to them. He wasn't hiring people. These were his slaves. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey. So, huge differences in details. In the parable of the vineyard, uh, the, the cash value was identical, but the time was different. In this parable, the time is equal. He's gone an, an equal amount of time. Between the time he departs and the time he comes back, it's an equal amount of time for all these slaves. So the time is equal, but the, uh, the cash denominations are different. And beyond just simply a denarius, oh my goodness, look at the number of talents. Talents. You know how many talents, how many denarii make up a talent? Uh, we're talking a fortune here. And so five talents, two talents, one talent, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey. And immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and he gained five more. In the same manner, the one who received the two talents gained two more. They have different activities in terms of what they're trading and how they're trading and what, they're, what commerce they're engaged in and whatever. And then he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. They have different activities. In the parable we're studying today in Matthew 20, they had the same activity. Go work in the vineyard. In, the, in this parable, they have different activities with the different amounts of money and the different business practices. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained you five more talents. All right. Now, whose talents are they? Are they the masters or are they the, the slaves? They're the masters. Okay. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two to me. See, I've gained two more. Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. Okay. What's this song and dance about? You know, why this long preamble to the, to the accounting? You know, he's the only one that tells the master what he thinks about him. <laughs> the other slaves don't say, you know, master, uh, we know that you're a hard man, blah, blah, blah. Just master, you gave me five, here's, here's ten. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Here's your one talent back. But the master answered and said, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would at least have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. 
So where's the, inequ- where's the equality there? Now you've got a guy with zero, a guy with four, and a guy with 11. There's no equality there. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, he, but he will have an abundance. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And, of course, you've got to throw the worthless slave in the outer darkness. In that place, we'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. I'm not going to teach that parable today. I don't have time, and it's coming up down the road anyway. But even without teaching the details, isn't it fairly evident that it's, it's a different story? Okay. Um, and the details are different. The message is different. The point being made is different. The point being made here is, is being made in verse 29, and it's entirely different than the point being made in Matthew 20. It's not an issue of first versus last because they were all starting at the same time, ending at the same time. The length of time was identical. It's not a first and last issue. But it's another realm of testing that has nothing to do with, with uh, duration or, or order. It has everything to do with ability and faithfulness because the provision was made on the basis of ability. The guy that was given a single talent could not have handled two and could not have handled five. The one who was given five had the ability to handle five. And so there's something else that's at work here that's focused on capacity for service, that's focused on faithfulness in service, that's focused on other elements other than just simply order, first, last, and what have you. So the attempts to try to blend these into a single message are are flawed. And there's really no reason to do so. And the only people who try to do so are the, I'm, I'm running out of adjectives, for the, the liberals, theological liberals. They don't believe God wrote the Bible anyway. And they've got a tragically human bibliology that thinks that this book is just simply, it's a collection of legends over the years that were oral traditions that were, you know, centuries later they were kind of balderdash. That's garbage. That's filth. This is the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. But because they don't believe that, they think these are just legends and stories that were kind of collected and confused and whatever, then they take their assumptions into that and they say, well, clearly, you know, somehow there was a story that got twisted and, and, and whatever, and they just view the whole thing as hopelessly contradictory. Sad. All right. Sad. If, in fact, you accept that this is God's word, God breathed, inspired, protected, preserved, delivered, that we are accountable, that we are commanded to study to show ourselves approved, then uh, this is uh, not a waste of time. Then we understand that both passages are different and both passages are true. So here's your principles then. We must reject the either or contrast. We must reject the either or. Or contrast. What do I mean by the either or contrast? The view that heaven is going to be either all equal or that heaven is going to be unequal. Okay. The view that it must be either or is a contrast that we, we have to reject that immediately. Because if Matthew 20 is addressing equality and Matthew 25 is addressing inequality, 
and we allow ourselves to fall into an either-or contrast, then we have already lost before we began to study the Scriptures. And here's how. Because an either-or contrast establishes that one of them is true and the other one is false. Either we're all equal or we're all unequal. And if you insist on it being either or, then whichever side you come down on, you're going to say, okay, I agree with this, and that one's not true. Problem is, God can't lie in Matthew 20, and God can't lie in Matthew 25. You and I cannot say that either of them is false. We must say they're both true. And so as we reject the either or contrast, we must embrace the both and contrast. Get rid of the either-or mentality and embrace the both-and mentality. Within the scope of what's being developed, we are both equal, Matthew chapter 20, and unequal, Matthew chapter 25, in the full understanding of what heaven's going to be all about. Or the millennial kingdom on planet earth. Or the fullness of time on the new earth. Or all of the things that are coming up down the road in, in eschatology. Alright. Yes, there is an element of equality to our salvation. Okay. And uh, we're all equally saved. We're all equally forgiven. We're all equally cleansed. We're all equally provided eternal life. We're all equally going to be in glory. And whether, of course, uh, you were saved for 90 years or 90 seconds, okay, we all have equality in terms of our position in Christ. We're all saved. And I'm no more saved than anyone else in this room or no less saved than anybody else in this room or in the body of Christ worldwide. That's the equality aspect. But then there's the inequality aspect. We're all equally saved, but we will not all be equally vested with the talents of treasure represented in Matthew 25. Not the denarius of, of labor, but the talents of invested, labor, uh, of invested service. That's on the basis of faithfulness. That's on the basis of, of uh, capacity for additional service. And if you're faithful in little things, you get entrusted with greater things. Why was this guy given five talents? Because maybe on the previous business trip, he'd been entrusted with two talents. And maybe on the business trip prior to that, he'd been entrusted with a single talent. Okay? And so faithfulness in little things leads to greater capacity and greater entrustment for greater things and down the road. So there are both, let's reject the either or, uh, the, uh, either or and embrace the both and. Both are true. We are both equally saved, but we are also equally rewarded on the basis of the capacity for service and what we've accomplished in our, in our stewardship in the Father's absence, in the Lord's absence. Understand, this is, um, if you can grasp this today, then um, you actually will do yourself some wonderful blessings in other studies as well. Okay? Lots of other applications here where um, I think the, uh, the, the, the issues with Calvinism and, and Arminianism, for example, as, as believers struggle with God's sovereignty on the one hand and human volition on the other hand. And the biggest nightmare is when, when uh, thinking continues to be enslaved to the 
either or conclusion. And if you if you find yourself unable to escape the either or way of thinking, then you got to choose sides. You got to either defend sovereignty and be a Calvinist, or you got to defend volition and be an Arminian. All right. But if you step away from the either or enslavement and you're able to embrace a both and reality, then you can understand both God's absolute, unconditional, eternal sovereignty and man's volitional exercise and accountability thereto. And you don't have to deny one in order to defend the other because you're not enslaved by the either or application. Does that make sense? So if you can embrace the, the concept of a both and, um, then you can reach realms of theology that aren't available to folks that can't venture into that realm of thinking. So in any event, uh, not to say that it's easy in many, in many cases, because a lot of times the both and is, uh, is, is a uh, difficulty for the human mind to grasp. And thank God it's not up to us to do it. <laughs> it's up to Him. He is the one that declares them both to be true. And so if there is a, an issue with trying to keep them both true, that's His realm to deal with, not ours in, uh, in some of those. That's just one. How many more are there? How many? There's dozens, dozens of cases where an either-or approach will, will sink us, but a both-and approach will will save us. And, and how do you get to the both and approach is when you stop it and you take a, just kind of take a step back from the question and say, wait a minute, this scripture says this and this scripture says this and God is true. This scripture is not a lie and that scripture is not a lie. The minute I have to affirm that this is true, this is true, then I've just crossed into the both and way of thinking. And I will not allow myself to return to the either-or way of thinking because to do so means that, well, either this has to be false or this has to be false. And I have to start then picking and choosing how the God who cannot lie has somehow put falsehoods into passages of Scripture that I don't like. <laughs> All right? And I tremble. That's blasphemy. I don't, I'm not going to even approach anything like that. Both and. If God said it, it's true. And uh, this is the, the privilege we have in rightly dividing the word of truth is being able to harmonize, being able to put this as a, as a valid assertion and this is a valid assertion because God's word says it. God's word says it. So let's not uh, let's appreciate the parable of the 11th hour laborers and not try to throw it in a contrast against the uh, the uh, laborers of the uh, talents. They're both. True. They're telling different stories, but they're both true. We need to we need to recognize that. All right. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness. You are a God of truth. We worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, uh, we we just thank you for being faithful. The Holy Spirit guiding us. The Holy Spirit opening the eyes of our understanding. And Father, with the recognition that that it's all uh, it's all by your grace that we can even learn such things. We we can't get prideful over what you open our eyes to see. And Father, we can't get prideful to think that we know it all. All we can do is day by day come back and get just a little bit more. Come back tomorrow and get a little bit more. And uh, Father, thank you for uh, designing your word to be to be uh, to be learned line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, thank you today that we can get just a little bit more. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.